Ben, ben, ben de Meer. Welcome to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I'm an ex-clerk for Justices Lillehaug and McKaig, and I work at Nichols Castor in Minneapolis. My name is Allison Key, and I was a clerk for Justices Strauss and Hudson. Today we have a fascinating case about personal jurisdiction, uh, the Crown Vic, and the invasion of foreign lawyers at the Minnesota Supreme Court. But before we get to that, here is some legal news. First up in Minnesota legal news is a Minnesota lawyer article from December 26th entitled Female Partner Salaries Lagging Behind. So this article highlights a biannual survey that was conducted by the major Lindsay and Africa firm that's based in Maryland. And this survey showed a couple things that are interesting. First, it showed that Minneapolis firms have the lowest average compensation for law firm partners at $593,000, less than half of the average compensation in New York, which is $1.45 million. Mark, how do you feel about making a lot less than you would in New York? Uh, great. New York is a trash city and Minneapolis is a haven. So one of the reps from the firm did say there are scales of economics that you have to consider. I'm seeing a lot of attorneys who want to move here, meaning Minnesota, from other markets. They see this area developing a reputation as the perfect market for a solid legal career combined with a great lifestyle. Yeah, this is it, it's dressed up as an article about uh, comp in the Minnesota legal community, but actually it's just like super desperate uh, Minnesotans talking about Minnesota. So uh, later this guy says, uh, it's not in any way a reflection on the vibrancy of this legal market, which like, come on, dude. So the second aspect of this article that's a little more infuriating, though also not super surprising, if you've been a woman living in this world for absolutely any amount of time, is that the survey also showed that, quote, the average compensation nationwide for male partners is 959000 while female partners only earn 627000 on average. So the Minnesota Lawyer article notes that, quote, throughout the history of the survey, male partners have consistently reported substantially higher average compensation than their female counterparts. So in trying to figure out or describe why this was the case, a research director on the project noted that their findings did show that both originations and billing rates together were responsible for nearly 75% of the overall variation in compensation across all partners who responded to the survey. The article notes that male partners have an hourly billing rate on average that was well above their female counterparts at $736 an hour compared to $650 an hour. Trying to end this sad article about a sad topic on maybe a little bit of a positive or hopeful note, the article also notes that it's only been a couple years that firms have started putting a dedicated focus on gender diversity and other types of diversity in both recruiting for associates and partners. So hopefully this difference will begin to dissipate in the near future. Second item we have is a quick update on one of our favorite subjects, the single subject clause of the Minnesota state constitution. Um, and this is just a, a quick item in MinPost uh, by an article by Peter Callahan uh, called you know you want to read this sexy story about legislative process reform. It notes that there is some hope that uh, with the incoming new batch of legislators in the state house, there will be changes in uh, broadly the procedure used to bring bills uh, up and to a vote. So the article notes that a reason we end up with these omnibus bills that end up occasionally resulting in legal controversies involving the single subject clause is that a bunch of bills get placed in big mother of all conference committees is the quote from the article rather than individually making their way through committees uh, and to votes by themselves. And uh, they note again that the Minnesota Supreme Court has quote done little to enforce the clause in the cases that have been so far brought before it 
but that A, a different result uh, might be forthcoming if a, a better case was brought before the Supreme Court. And that B, quote, rumor has it that the governor-elect will take the position that since the Supreme Court won't enforce the single subject rule, he will. Uh, so a lot of shade, potentially, by uh, governor-elect Walls toward the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, and we'll see if that uh, manifests itself and maybe will be the kind of kick in the rear that the court might need to uh, actually lay down the law on that constitutional provision. So listeners of our podcast might remember that the case that everyone's talking about that dealt with the single subject clause was Otto v. Wright County, which was the first case that we profiled way back in March of 2018. Um, and we had some similar words, comments, and thoughts about the Minnesota Supreme Court's lack of interest in involving itself in what is a clearly ridiculous process. So however the legislature or the governor decides to deal with this is better than what we got from the Supreme Court in Otto v. Wright County. Yeah, I think it's an issue that keeps recurring, uh, as you know, if you listen to the podcast, and that's a good sign for something eventually happening with it. Speaking of throwbacks to early 2018, another Minnesota lawyer article that we have is from the December 17th issue, which brings us a story about how the Minnesota Senate Rules and Administration Committee voted on December 11th to fund what was Michelle Fishbach's defense in the Dusaski v. Fishbach lawsuit filed against Fishbach that we talked about about a year ago when Michelle Fishbach briefly considered keeping both her Senate seat as well as the role of lieutenant governor that she inherited by law after Governor Dayton appointed the previous lieutenant governor to Al Franken's vacant Senate seat. So this double duty that she had been briefly considering was, according to one of her constituents, Dusaski, in apparent violation of the Constitution. However, as we covered on the show, that lawsuit was dismissed after she eventually resigned from her Senate seat to be lieutenant governor full time and also accept the lieutenant governor candidate spot on the Palenti gubernatorial ticket, which we know wasn't the right horse to back. One of the attorneys on her case, Kevin Magnuson, testified for the Senate Subcommittee on Litigation and Expenses before this recent vote in the full committee, and he said that they gave her representation a steal in which they halved the rate that they would have charged uh, in an attempt to save the taxpayers' money on this lawsuit. So on December 11th, then, the full committee did vote to retroactively fund this lawsuit that has since been dismissed. However, one DFLer, perhaps predictably, did have a problem with Fishbach defending this lawsuit on the taxpayer's dime, particularly because she did eventually resign one of the posts anyway. So Minnesota lawyer quotes this DFLer, Ron Latz of St. Louis Park, as saying, quote, she was trying to sit on two seats with one butt. The Constitution does not provide for that. State politics, folks. And then we have one resulting case to bring you up to date on, uh, which is uh, less notable for the content than the author. Um, so this is the first opinion by uh, new Associate Justice uh, Paul Thiessen. It was released on December 5th, 2018, in a case called State v. Ortega Rodriguez, um, a unanimous decision, so uh, a nice contrast with uh, Justice Thiessen's first uh, authored output of any kind, which uh, we covered Previously, the 17-page dissent in the uh, RV uh, Battle Royale case. Uh, this one, a lot simpler, um, mostly a matter of straightforward statutory interpretation. Um, and perhaps notably, given Justice Thiessen's uh, dissent, which we thought might have been tinged with his experience in the legislature, uh, this one is uh, much more by the book as far as the Minnesota Supreme Court does statutory interpretation. So um, sticking to text-based uh, structural analysis, plain and un unambiguous meaning, the kind of things that you see frequently from this court. Up next is our featured case called Bandemir v. Ford. So this case is a case about personal jurisdiction, which does give first-year law students headaches and probably still makes the rest of us cringe. I actually think this case is fascinating. 
one because personal jurisdiction itself is just super fascinating as far as just a first principles policy argument about what the law should do um and and what role uh courts should have in in people and corporations lives uh and and where they can be hailed into court and two in that man i'm just continually surprised that people have not sorted this stuff out like this entire case is an open question what analytical approach to use how those analytical approaches work what the u.s supreme court was meaning in a case that it released like last year uh nothing but open questions so lots of fun to be had and i think you're right even where the courts especially the u.s supreme court has weighed in it has been rather inconsistent um requiring a lot of the lawyers particularly in this case to weave kind of duck and weave through inconsistent and incomplete case law on the issue. So it'll be very interesting to see what the Minnesota Supreme Court comes up with and if the U.S. Supreme Court wants to weigh in after the Minnesota Supreme Court does. The central question in any personal jurisdiction analysis is what does it take for any type of state or state court to have authority over a particular litigant? What kinds of involvement in or contacts with a state do you have to have before you can be hailed into court into that state and expected to answer for that state's laws so like we mentioned this does involve issues of what intuitively feels like traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice but where it gets less sympathetic here which is important is when you consider that most of the parties litigating these personal jurisdiction cases today are not individuals, but corporations who do not want to be subject to liability for their products in X, Y, or Z states. So they litigate these personal jurisdiction cases. So as you might expect, fair play when we are dealing with Ford Motor Company, like we are here, has a different ring to it than if Mark was being hailed into court somewhere random. But the principles of law are the same. So here's a super brief background on uh, some of the law that's relevant here. It's generally accepted that uh, when we talk about personal jurisdiction, we're talking about a right that defendants have under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, uh, and that's a due process right. So Minnesota does have its own statute uh, that deals with uh, personal jurisdiction. It's called a long arm statute, but it just says uh, Minnesota personal jurisdiction is coextensive with federal personal jurisdiction. So that's why we end up in federal case law land right away. Right now, as best we can tell from Supreme Court of the United States, uh, the due process hook that we're talking about uh, with personal jurisdiction seems to be that it's meant to limit the power of a state court to render a valid personal judgment against a non-resident defendant, right? So you could imagine um, I've said a lot of negative things about Wisconsin and a vindictive Wisconsin court might want to inflict a harmful judgment upon me. The due process clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution prevents a Wisconsin court from doing that uh, to some degree. A couple types of personal jurisdiction, only one of which is at issue in this case. So one is general personal, personal jurisdiction. The idea here is that uh, the defendant is at home. So for corporations, uh, we're talking about where they're headquartered or where they're incorporated. Uh, for Ford, that is Michigan and Delaware, respectively. Of course, Ford could be sued in Michigan and Delaware. Those are general jurisdiction states for it. The parties have stipulated there's no general ju jurisdiction in this case. What I think I'll say is that Bandemir agrees that general jurisdiction, you know, in the at-home sense, is not met on the facts of this case. The other type which we are dealing with is specific personal jurisdiction. So um, the, the kind of starting phrase to work with there is that the suit must arise out of or relate to the activities in the forum. Of course, the cases say arise out of or relates to. The question is, what does it mean to arise out of or relate to? Things get pretty fuzzy from there about what arises out of or relates to the forum, what's a connection uh, between the events in the case uh, and the forum. The short answer is that uh, nobody really knows. Um, there are a few theories, uh, and they have been adopted by various uh, cohorts of the uh, United States Supreme Court or various state Supreme Courts or various district courts. And so uh, the kind of consequence is that if you're litigating one of these cases, 
you can find authority for almost anything you want to do. Um, so we'll we'll talk about causation and foreseeability and streams of commerce uh, and the like. And when you get a bunch of theories that are at odds about the same subject, it can be tempting to think that people are off base or misunderstanding what's happening or uh, or trying to pull something uh, novel on the court. It's just not the case. Um, there are just a bunch of different competing theories for how this should work. And the Supreme Court of the United States has been a little uh, irresponsible, probably in failing to cobble together actual majorities to give people uh, some real direction. Right. So like Mark said, the U.S. Supreme Court has specifically not weighed in on this issue of specific personal jurisdiction more than it really needs to to deal with any case at the bare minimum that it decides to take. And it hasn't really given any clear answers or made any attempt to provide any guidance here, most likely because it doesn't know how to do that. There have been shifting rationales for the existence of personal jurisdiction, though, like Mark said, it's mostly now thought to be rooted in due process. But because we can barely decide on why it exists, it's obviously very difficult to be understanding what the exact parameters of it are. So for that specific reason, um, everything that the U.S. Supreme Court does say on this issue of personal jurisdiction is sliced and diced even more finely to tease out some meaning to whatever case it is willing to give us. So there's three cases that are discussed a lot in oral argument that might help with understanding what we're dealing with here. So the first case is Worldwide Volkswagen v. Woodson, a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1980. So in Worldwide Volkswagen, it deals with the plaintiffs who bought a car in New York, drove it across the country, and were involved in a car accident in Oklahoma. It made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, who said that the retailer and distributor of the car from New York cannot be sued in Oklahoma because to be able to be sued in a state, you have have to have purposefully availed yourself of that state, which was not the case here. In Worldwide Volkswagen, we're talking about a dealership and a wholesaler up in in, New Jersey or New York, I can't recall, but they had no market in um, Oklahoma where the accident occurred. They didn't try to target Oklahoma. And that was ultimately the result of Worldwide Volkswagen. As the court said in Worldwide Volkswagen, your vehicle is not your, uh, you know, the chattel is not your agent for service of process. The next case, fast forward 35 years, was Walden v. Fiore, a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2014. This case was about two travelers from California and Nevada, respectively, who were vacationing in Puerto Rico. On their flight home, they had a layover in Atlanta. In Atlanta, they were stopped by the DEA, who were suspicious of the large amounts of cash they were carrying, which they say they won from a casino in Puerto Rico. They eventually then sued the DEA agent who had seized their property in Atlanta and sued that agent in Nevada. In that case, the U.S. Supreme Court said there is no jurisdiction over the DEA agent from Atlanta in Nevada because, quote, when the conduct occurred entirely in Georgia, the mere fact that the conduct affected plaintiffs with connections to Nevada does not authorize jurisdiction in Nevada. That defendant, the DEA agent Walden, had no connection with Nevada. Walden merely held that a defendant's random fortuitous or attenuated contact with a forum resident in an airport while the resident was outside the forum was insufficient to support personal jurisdiction. If we know one thing from Walden, it's that the plaintiff's ties to the forums are not enough. The final case that becomes relevant is Bristol Myers Squibb v. California, a 2017 U.S. Supreme Court case, also called BMS, and it's the most recent specific personal jurisdiction opinion from SCOTUS. In BMS, a class action was brought in California against a drug company that made a blood thinner that had caused significant complications in patients all across the country. The patients suing the drug company were from 33 different states. 86 of them were from California, 575 were from other states. The drug company moved to dismiss the claims from the non-California residents in California, saying that there was no jurisdiction over that drug company for those out-of-state claims. 
the non-residents were not prescribed Plavix in California. They didn't purchase it in California. They didn't ingest it in California. They didn't seek treatment in California. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the drug company, Bristol-Myers Squibb, that it cannot be sued by those out-of-state litigants in California, despite the fact that the same case was going forward in California with the 86 California litigants. There was a lot of Plavix sold in uh, California in Bristol-Myers Squibb in that case. And the plaintiffs essentially said, you know, what's the difference? We have claims that are similar to the claims that are being brought by these other plaintiffs who are uncontested to have personal jurisdiction here on the same product that was sold here in vast quantities and also marketed here. And the court said, that's not enough. It has to be a tie between your claims, not just other people's claims and the same kind of product in some sort of marketing, a tie between the specific claims at issue. The U.S. Supreme Court held that, quote, California courts lack specific jurisdiction to entertain the claims in this case brought by plaintiffs who are not California residents because there is an insufficient connection between the forum and the specific claims at issue. So that's the holding is if you don't, if your litigation doesn't have any connection to the forum, then you can't be there. So those three cases are the main indications from the U.S. Supreme Court of what it means for a claim to arise out of or relate to any particular defendant's contacts with any particular forum that would render them subject to jurisdiction in that forum. A few facts to set the table for us. So uh, Adam Bandemir is from Minnesota, which is important. Uh, He's a Minnesota resident. In 2016, he was injured while riding as a passenger in Minnesota in a 1994 Ford Crown Victoria, manufactured by Ford Motor Company. Uh, It sounds like the driver of the car uh, rear-ended a snowplow, the car flipped into a ditch, and Bandemir uh, suffered severe brain injuries. Uh, So Bandemir sued a few people in relation to this accident, including the the driver of the car. Uh, But relevant here is Bandemir's particular claim against Ford, alleging that the vehicle was defectively designed, manufactured, and marketed. So Bandemir is alleging in his complaint that this particular car, the 94 Crown Vic, had a design defect which caused the airbags to fail to deploy, causing him injuries. That there is some sort of design defect that caused the airbag not to fire in this case. And we we are not further enough in the case to know what plaintiffs think was wrong with it or what should have been done with the airbag system to make it fire. Ford moved to dismiss Bandemir's claims against it for lack of personal jurisdiction. Uh, Ford's main argument in support of its motion to dismiss was that the vehicle wasn't designed, manufactured, or sold by Ford to a dealer in Minnesota. Uh, Like we said, Bandemir stipulated that Ford isn't subject to general jurisdiction in Minnesota, uh, but Bandemir argues that Ford is subject to specific personal jurisdiction in Minnesota due to Ford's contacts with the state uh, of varying kinds. The district court uh, on the motion to dismiss uh, found that Ford consented to jurisdiction by registering to do business in Minnesota and by designating an agent in Minnesota for service. So of course, we had a dispute in the trial court about consent by registration, which the Court of Appeals didn't pass on and would, would have to be resolved when this case goes back. It was certainly presented in the district court. In fact, it was the primary grounds on which the district court rules. It was briefed and argued in the Court of Appeals. They just decided to bypass it. Ford appealed the case, uh, they brought in some fancy counsel, and the Minnesota Court of Appeals also found personal jurisdiction, however, for different reasons. This is uh, probably starting to give you a flavor of the way this case goes, that um, the district court found personal jurisdiction for one way, the Court of Appeals for a different way, and so there's just a ton of ideas and theories floating around here. Uh, the Minnesota Court of Appeals found personal jurisdiction uh, on the grounds that Ford had sufficient minimum contacts with Minnesota due to its marketing activities in Minnesota and its collection of data from vehicles of Minnesota drivers at its Minnesota service centers. Um, Ford appealed again to the Minnesota Supreme Court, very invested in getting the law how it wants in Minnesota so it can uh, presumably try and stay home in cozy Michigan to litigate cases involving Ford vehicles in the future. So on to the arguments that both parties, both Ford and Bandemir, made at the Minnesota Supreme Court. Like Mark said, two things are essentially undisputed, so we will not be fighting about them here. One, there's no general personal jurisdiction. There's no at-home jurisdiction. So all arguments are made on specific personal jurisdiction. Second thing about this case that's undisputed is that Ford doesn't dispute that it has some 
business contacts with Minnesota. Ford straight up in its brief acknowledges that it wholesales vehicles to dozens of independent franchise dealerships in Minnesota, uses the mail to communicate with consumers in Minnesota, and has promoted Ford products in Minnesota. So those two things are not disputed. Beyond that, though, that's where the personal jurisdiction fight is. The first attorney to argue in this case was for Ford, the appellant here, and it was Sean Murata of Appellate Twitter fame. He also argued for Ford at the Court of Appeals about a year ago. He works at the DC-based firm Hogan Levels, which, given the fact that Ford is the client, is not surprising. Good morning, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Sean Murata for the appellant Ford Motor Company. For what it's worth, I host a podcast about uh, an appellate court, and I really have no idea what appellate court Twitter is. So like we mentioned earlier, Ford is not contesting the types, quantity, character, anything else about its contacts with the state. Ford's main argument here is about whether the contacts that we all agree exist are sufficiently related to Bandemir's injury that gave rise to this suit to justify specific jurisdiction over Ford for this specific claim in Minnesota. So here, the types of contacts that Ford had with Minnesota at the time, according to Ford, must be related to the injury that he sustained by the 1994 Crown Victoria. All agree that this case turns on the connection prong of specific jurisdiction, which requires that Ford engage in suit-related conduct uh, that creates a substantial connection with Minnesota. Or put differently, Bandemir's claims have to arise out of or relate to things that Ford did in the state of Minnesota. Here, there is no suit-related conduct by Ford in the state. This vehicle was assembled in Ontario. Its allegedly defective uh, restraint system was designed in Michigan. The vehicle was first sold by Ford in North Dakota. And there was no Ford warranty work that was engaged in in the state of Minnesota. So all of the things that uh, Ford is alleged to have done in the state of Minnesota don't have a connection to Bandemir's particular claims in this case. So I think you can see there uh, Ford's theory of personal jurisdiction developing, which is a very direct causal relationship being necessary to uh, obtain specific personal jurisdiction. Um, Again, that's one interpretation of that crucial phrase arising out of or relating to uh, the forum in the case. So after making what Mark had just outlined was kind of a straightforward approach to jurisdiction based on existing law from the U.S. Supreme Court as Ford interpreted it and other state and federal courts around the country. Ford's brief continues in another section saying the court need not go further to resolve this appeal, which may make you wonder why we're continuing. But the court may wish to revisit its statements in Riley, a previous Minnesota Supreme Court case, suggesting that the court had adopted a non-causal approach to the connection requirement in light of Bristol-Myers and how Riley's statements about a non-causal standard led the Court of Appeals below astray. So it's interesting in this case that despite not needing to adopt a different standard to resolve this case, even in Ford's favor, Ford is still arguing for a further restriction of specific personal jurisdiction in Minnesota, which is not the current law in Minnesota. The question is, what does it mean to arise out of or relate to? We think from first principles that a causal approach is probably the best way to approach that. And in fact, that's the way that most courts that have addressed the issue, including the Eighth Circuit, have done so. So a bold move coming into Minnesota and uh, telling the Minnesota Supreme Court it should uh, change its case law. D.C. is literally not even a state. (laughs) Low blow, low blow taxation without representation. But you can see why, if you're thinking about Ford, a large corporation, they don't want to come back to have to defend any actual lawsuits in Minnesota. So they're going to argue for the strictest, narrowest test possible, um, which Ford claims is supported by recent Supreme Court case law. But what's interesting about this argument that they made so forcefully in a decent portion of their brief is that when actually in Minnesota, in front of the Minnesota Supreme Court, Ford's attorney backed down from this argument that previous Minnesota case law is inconsistent with current U.S. Supreme Court case law and that Minnesota should abandon its non-causal standard in Riley to adopt a more strict causal test. 
because as I read your brief, you are suggesting that the relates to standard that we used in Riley um, is is incorrect, that we should be looking at a, a, a more direct causal statute. And so I, I'm wondering, am I misunderstanding you or um, help me with, with that? Because it seems to me that that is the standard and Bristol Myers Squibb says that is the standard. So I was confused about why Riley is inconsistent with BMS. So I think there's, there's a couple different things, Your Honor. Of course, the cases say arise out of or relates to. The question is, what does it mean to arise out of or relate to? Um, we think from first principles that a causal approach is probably the best way to approach that. And in fact, that's the way that most courts that have addressed the issue, including the Eighth Circuit, have done. So you're not saying that it holds that there, that there has to be this direct causal standard? No, we think the causal standard comes from the full run of cases. It comes from, you know, the, uh, when it talks about, um, when all the cases talk about, you know, ari arising out of, and it, um, the, the connection between uh, the defendant's contacts. And I, I would again point this court to all the other courts that have uh, read these as, as creating a causal standard. The Eighth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, uh, most state high courts that again have directly addressed this issue. So after pretty clearly setting up the idea in his brief that Riley is inconsistent with U.S. Supreme Court precedent, he instead mentions that he thinks it's from first principles and kind of the full run of all U.S. Supreme Court cases. Next up was uh, Bandemir's attorney, uh, Kyle Farah of the Houston-based law firm Farah & Ball. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is Kyle Farah. I represent the respondent, Mr. Bandemir. And I just want to really respond to a lot of the things in Ford's arguments, more so than the briefs, and kind of get out of the briefs a little bit. I am already in love with Mr. Farah. There's nothing that the justices, the clerks, the general public wants more than for an attorney at oral argument to be able to address the issues that matter to the court and that have been uh, argued fully by the other side rather than rehashing the brief. And uh, Mr. Farrow was true to his word. Uh, he was generally responsive, uh, fluent, and, uh, and able to skip around to the various points of this case in his oral argument. Uh, also, just a, a, a kind of a Texas drawl. Uh, if you look up his picture uh, online like I did, a uh, real handsome uh, kind of suit jacket, plaid shirt, jeans, Texas combo on his website. Uh, a lot of things Mr. Fair is doing that I'm really into. Mark was very impressed by the aesthetics of Mr. Fair. So like I said, a surprising component of Bandemir's argument is that they won uh, uh, at the Court of Appeals, which uh, Mr. Fair argued, on a theory that Ford's contacts via its marketing activities in Minnesota and the data that it collected from Minnesota drivers uh, were sufficient to create a connection, meaning that the case uh, related to activities that took place in Minnesota. When you win at the Court of Appeals and then you end up at the Supreme Court, you cling tightly to that Court of Appeals opinion because it's a solid court and it's well-reasoned. Uh, Bandemir did not abandon those points, but they uh, conspicuously appear later on in its brief to the Supreme Court. And instead, it embraces as its principal point the stream of commerce theory. Um, this did not come up at all in the principal brief of uh, Ford because it really hadn't been raised in the case to this point. It is a true stream of commerce theory. That, look, when you place an item in the stream of commerce, whether you use Justice O'Connor's from Asahi Metals, uh, stream of Commerce Plus, or you just use the pure Stream of Commerce from Justice Brennan wrote, if you place a product in the Stream of Commerce and you have an expectation and a desire that it meets a certain market, you're held liable in that market. Worldwide Volkswagen says, out of your Volkswagen is simply, is not simply an isolated occurrence, but arises from the efforts of the manufacturer or distributor to serve directly or indirectly the market for its products in other states. So while, like Mark said, Bandemir maybe didn't go with a full stream of commerce theory at the Court of Appeals, I think the stream of commerce theory kind of ties in and relates to the argument that they won on at the Court of Appeals, which was the minimum contacts that the Court of Appeals noted that Ford had with Minnesota, which were the marketing techniques and the data collected, kind of all evidence that Ford was expecting its products to end up here. It was expecting that the stream of commerce would lead here. So though I agree that it's kind of a different tack to take, it seems related to the contacts that they had built up in the litigation thus far. 
if you look at the stream of commerce theory, what the issue is, did you create a market for your products in that state? So I think really all, I, I, I wouldn't single anything out. Everything that they've done in the state of Minnesota to create a market, to specifically target Minnesotans to buy their product. It is, and it's interesting in that it's kind of the conceptual opposite to the argument that Ford's making, which is a, a really tightly strung uh causality requirement for personal jurisdiction. And uh, rather than even really addressing that to begin with, uh, Bandemir is saying this stream of commerce theory, which for a national corporation like Ford, uh, I think Bandemir eventually acknowledges, is going to basically result in personal jurisdiction everywhere, represents the widest possible ambit that you could uh, prescribe for personal jurisdiction. So coming out hard with a stream of commerce theory in oral argument was not the most obvious choice to make. In fact, it was a little bit surprising because as Justice Hudson mentioned, though the stream of commerce has been mentioned in U.S. Supreme Court cases for many years and has been used by state Supreme Courts to justify personal jurisdiction over corporations putting their products into the stream of commerce, it's not really clear what coherent theory about the stream of commerce has emerged from the U.S. Supreme Court. Counsel, counsel, if I could, help me with the, your stream of commerce theory because, I mean, just now you cited both O'Connor's uh, opinion, but then Brennan has the, the concurrence, at least as to the judgment, and I kind of came away from the stream of commerce cases not knowing what the rule is and and has that been has that been settled because it just it seems to me O'Connor and Brennan come out on different sides of that thing and so where where is that that case law so great question if you look at the individual states the way that they've looked at it is some choose stream of commerce Brennan some choose O'Connor stream of commerce plus I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court has really given us guidance. So both the court through Justice Hudson and Bandemir there acknowledge that the theory that he's asking for and leading with in this case doesn't really have the most solid footing in the jurisprudence. I think uh, the response to that is that there's not a theory that has an obviously extremely strong footing at the Supreme Court at all. So um, why not take a swing at something new? He, he does a good job, I think, to framing his expectations within the best we have from the U.S. Supreme Court. The two plurality opinions from Asahi is what he discussed. And he says, listen, you pick the theory you like best. My client wins under either. These are not things that I made up. They exist in the case law. You pick and we'll go from there. As to which that, one of those That's my two? point. So what do we what do we do? What do we do with that theory that you're arguing with the, to us now? Well, for, for, for our particular case, we easily meet e either standard, either the stream of commerce or stream of commerce plus. No question that we meet that standard. So the issue is maybe for the court as a policy matter, which one does the court want to adopt if, if, if one of those, um, but for deciding the individual case in front of you, there's, there's no question. So whichever test the court looks at in the stream of commerce, we're there. So as skeptical as Justice Hudson was about the stream of commerce theory and how the Minnesota Supreme Court should handle it, a couple of the other justices were incredibly skeptical of the stream of commerce theory and how that theory meshes and fits with the requirement outlined in BMS and almost every specific personal jurisdiction case about how claims must relate to the defendant's contacts with the forum. Counsel, I just need to understand the, the argument from, from respondents here. Is it your contention that as long as Ford engages in activity in Minnesota that relate to the Crown Victoria in general, there doesn't have to be any specific conduct by Ford in Minnesota that gives rise to this particular lawsuit. That's correct, Your Honor. And that, that's the stream of commerce theory, whether it be stream of commerce or... So, so let, me, let me try my question a little more precisely formulated. So my question to you is this, then. It is the plaintiff's position here that Ford can be sued in any state in which the plaintiff suffered an injury. Absolutely. As, as has been the law for since Helicopteros. So I think Farah actually maybe could have had a little better answer to 
Justice Anderson's question that narrowed it a little bit because I think you could tell that Justice Anderson was skeptical that there were no limitations to this. And I think he should have said, yes, as long as there's an expectation that my products are going to end up there. So no, Ford can't be sued in any of the 50 states. Ford can be sued in any of the 50 states where it markets and collects data from people knowing that its products are going to end up there. And I think that would have maybe put him in a little bit better of a position and still made his stream of commerce theory just as strong. Um, but I do agree with Mark that Farah does take that broader picture view, that wider view and saying, let's get out of the briefs, get out of the SCOTUS cases that don't actually tell us a huge amount about personal jurisdiction and where it's going and ask a basic question. Does it actually make sense to you that Minnesota can't hear this case based on a Minnesota resident being injured by Ford in Minnesota? And I think he does a good job of just making it a very practical argument. Who has a better interest in policing defendants' defective products against a Minnesota resident than Minnesota? And that's what Bristol-Myers says. It says the folks in California, they don't have any interest in policing a drug sold by a New Jersey company to a Ohio resident who took it in Ohio, was prescribed in Ohio, and injured in Ohio. California has no interest in that. Minnesota has a very strong interest in protecting its citizens. If you take Ford's argument to its logical conclusion, courts in Minnesota would no longer be able to protect their citizens for products when they're injured in Minnesota unless the product was basically manufactured in Minnesota. Yeah, I think one parallel point to some of that it was made by Justice Lillehaug at the start of the oral argument, which is that if uh, Vandermeer can't bring his claim in Minnesota, as Ford contends, then necessarily the lawsuits arising out of these events, which include the driver of the car as a defendant and Ford Motor Company as a defendant, will have to take place in different locales. Following up on Justice Hudson's question, is there any place where the Hansons and Ford could be sued in a single lawsuit? Are we going to have a problem of two lawsuits with two empty chairs? There, there may have to be, Your Honor, but again, that's... Well, may or will. I mean, what... You're, you, you've been working on this case for a while. You're an expert on specific personal jurisdiction. Is there any place in the nation, in your judgment, where the Hansons... And, and Ford could be sued with specific or general personal jurisdiction over each. I am not aware of any facts about the Hansons that would allow them to be sued in Michigan or Delaware or North Dakota. So there, there are some uh, kind of practical difficulties that immediately result from uh, the kind of technical interpretation that Ford is attempting to impose on the case. And uh, whether that fits into the legal framework that the court is dealing with here, uh, I think it's a, a relevant question to consider whether you're you're creating a system that is going to be burdensome and uh, and complicated when you apply it. One quick note about uh, the single amicus brief that was filed in this case uh, by the United States Chamber of Commerce. Um, I guess a couple quick notes. Uh, one uh, on the signature line of that brief, among others. Uh, was a venerable attorney, Andrew Pincus, uh, who uh, fans of the United States Supreme Court might know. He's argued 29 cases there, including uh, the string of various uh, travesties of justice at the United States Supreme Court, uh, such as Spokio Viri Robbins uh, or AT&T Mobility v. Concepcion. Um, so the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has weighed in here um, to kind of blackmail the state of Minnesota. I'm just going to quote you a couple points from its brief. Uh, they say that Bandemir's position, uh, quote, poses a, a threat of serious practical harms to this state and its residents. Out-of-state businesses may be loath to invest in Minnesota or do business here if they could thereby become subject to specific jurisdiction for claims that have nothing to do with the company's in-state business activities. I am not quaking in my boots about Ford uh, discontinuing the sale of its cars here. And frankly, uh, from an attorney who has been able to uh, effect such damaging opinions at the United States Supreme Court, uh, expected a little better. Um, another interesting note about the amicus briefs filed in this case, that there is no brief filed from the state of Minnesota itself which is only interesting because the state did file an amicus brief in the case that keeps coming up called Riley v. Money Mutual um, from 2014, which was the last 
big, specific personal jurisdiction case. Um, it filed a brief in Riley stating in particular the interest in protecting Minnesotans themselves. And the facts here aren't exactly the same, so maybe it was a calculated decision not to file an amicus brief on behalf of the state here, but given the turnover in the office that is currently happening, it's hard to know what the rationale for that was. So just some other interesting notes from oral argument. I think we spent a lot of time talking about how maybe Vandermeer's theory is a little less settled in the case law, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that Ford Motor Co. doesn't have completely solid ground either. Um, Like we've mentioned, the Supreme Court case law in this area, particularly from the U.S. Supreme Court, but also from the Minnesota Supreme Court, isn't very clear. And so the attorney for Ford also has to work pretty hard at various points to distinguish a lot of cases that didn't work in his favor when he was trying to define exactly what it meant to arise out of as required for specific personal jurisdiction. What do you do with Burger King? Uh, you know, it's interesting what you do with Burger King. The answer is, I think you just have I mean, that that language in Burger King. It, it had nothing to do with the case. And I think it's simply squarely refuted by Bristol-Myers Squibb. And I understand Burger King does say that, but I don't think that language, which had nothing to do with the ultimate result in Burger King, can simply survive Bristol-Myers Squibb. But when you look at the actual BMS decision, one of the things they talk about is that it ha- the activity has to take place in the forum state. And so what, what do we do with that? When the main activity in question here, the injury, took place here in Minnesota. I think that's best read to talk about the defendant's activities or occurrences because Bristol-Myers Squibb says it, Walden versus Fior says it, going all the way back to Helicopteros where we first have the mention of the arise out of a relate to standard. It's uh, the relationship among the defendant, the forum, and the But claims. if that's true, counsel, then, you know, again, when you read BMS, the principal focus of the opinion is what the plaintiffs were doing. So it's not, it seems to me we can't ignore that. I think that gets back to the conversation we were having earlier, which is that, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the Supreme Court's cases tell you a lot of what's not specific jurisdiction. So when it, it says all of those things, it's telling you what, you know, all those things don't add up to specific jurisdiction. Then isn't the converse true? You know, I don't think the converse Why isn't it? I don't think the converse is true because the court often tells you that these things aren't enough, but it doesn't address, you know, if you add in one of those things, that specific jurisdiction. Yeah, but I think the point Justice Hudson is making um, is that why would they even discuss those facts unless they were in some respects relevant to the, the, the specific personal jurisdiction decision? Oh, because I think you see it later in the decision where it says um, that those are the things that make this case easier than Walden. Counsel, what if any relevance is there to Worldwide Volkswagen in this case? Uh, well, I think the main holding of Worldwide Volkswagen is squarely relevant to this case. Now, I take it, Your Honor, that you might be referring to a different passage in Worldwide Volkswagen that talks about Volkswagen if that were the defendant in the case. What I'll say is this. That was dicta, and in fact, this court said in Julich at footnote four that that passage was dicta. So even though Bandemir's argument is probably, like Justice Hudson said, uh, pushing a rock up a hill, it's not like Ford has a particularly easy or downhill argument here. And I think Ford and Sean Murata do as good of a job as you could expect, weaving through all the inconsistent and incomplete SCOTUS precedent and the mess that SCOTUS has made with personal jurisdiction. But as we just heard, a decent amount of his weaving does require disregarding specific language in pretty significant cases, as the justices, I think, did a pretty good job pinning him down for an oral argument. So, Mark, what do you predict the result will be in this case? I think this is a divided victory for Bandemir. That might be my own hopes and wishes. triumphing over my reasoned analysis, but counting justices, it felt like Justice Hudson, the kind of scholar of this subject on the court, was in Bandemir's court, as was Justice Lillehaug, and I thought Justice McCaig, uh, not a word, I believe literally, from Justice Chudich, so hard to know. No, I had to check the video to make sure she was actually there, but no, she didn't even say one thing in our argument. Strange. And then a stray comment, or a few stray comments from Justice Thiessen, mostly about resolving uh, various factual issues, so hard to know there. But, you know, starting with those three votes uh, is a pretty good base for Bandemir, and on the other side, uh, it seemed like the chief 
and Justice Anderson were pretty firmly set against it. Um, that just is interesting in that, you know, on this podcast, we try and cover the more interesting and potentially more divisive stuff that happens at the court. So we miss out on a lot of their unanimity. But to the extent you were looking for, if you tried to map on the political valence of some of these cases to the justices, I think you would get fairly consistent results. And, you know, Ford Mortar Company uh, advertises in Minnesota, has plenty of business in Minnesota in lots of respects, and through that, avails itself of the laws of Minnesota, the public facilities of Minnesota, and suddenly doesn't want to have anything to do with a Minnesota citizen trying to resolve a legal dispute in a Minnesota court. Um, I think if you want to look at it through that lens, then you can see a political valence there and that it maps on to some of the other decisions made by these justices, if I'm right, that it resolves on divided lines. And I think that motivation was made explicit in oral arguments, certainly from Justices McKegg and Hudson, who really said, why can't someone who takes from here also have to give back from here when there's harm done. Why would Ford not expect to be sued in a state where you've sold thousands of cars, you've done various uh, safety testing here, the accident occurred here, the defendants are here. Um, I mean, you're Ford. What about the fact that Ford has availed itself of Minnesota in many ways, which I think goes to what Justice Hudson was saying. When you look at all of the factors, and, and, and to me from our case law, it says that we can do that. You have Ford, sure, markets nationwide, but you also have some targeted marketing. The Northland, that's that was targeted towards the Midwest. Um, you, I think there was a 1966 Mustang for the Minnesota Vikings. Not that they deserve it, <laughs> given last night, but I mean that's targeted towards Minnesota. You've taken data from Minnesota and from the dealerships and the cars sold here to inform Ford as to what they're going to do in further designs. And in fact, the specific model of this car was sold here. Um, and you have obviously made money in Minnesota. So when we put all of that together, why does that not um, meet the standard? Um, so I definitely agree that that was at least in the minds of the justices, whether or not it animates how they vote. I totally agree with you that the Chief Justice and Justice Anderson are strong in the Ford camp. I think a lot of the reason that Ford's attorney had such a straightforward and successful argument was because the chief was already on his side and very much not for Bandemir. I'm less sure than you about Justice Hudson. Like you said, she's very well-versed in this area as we heard in oral argument, but I think she also has a history of feeling very limited by U.S. Supreme Court case law, and she's very hesitant to step in front of the Supreme Court in any way. So if she feels like there's no path for Bandemir here, I don't think she will help him make one. So I, I would say we have four relatively certain votes. Chief Justice Anderson on one side, Justice Lahog and Justice McKegg on the other side, and three wild cards. So we'll see if you're right that Bandemir prevails. Allison, what did we learn from the case today? Um, today we learned if you are a visiting attorney to Minnesota, don't ask Minnesota to erase half of its case law in a particular area. <laughs> And then also don't get in a passenger seat of a car unless you're in Delaware, where every corporation is subject to general jurisdiction. Very dark. <laughs> that wraps up another episode of The Common Law. Thanks for listening. Uh, check us out at our website, thecommnlaw.com, at our probably dormant Twitter account, but we're working on it uh, at The Common Law. And thank you to the state law librarians, to our co-directors of communication, Joy and Chloe, to the Mike Schultz Law Firm, the official sponsor of The Common Law. And we'll see you next time. Have a nice one, commoners. I was mostly just listening to the Texan. <laughs>